Promise No Promises is a series of podcasts that has its origin in a research project initiated by Chus Martinez and supported by Instituto Sush, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland and Gracina Kulcic. The aim of this project is to raise attention to the role, language and importance of art education in positively influencing gender equality in art and culture. Do you think the idea of aesthetic taste is a gendered concept? Do you think gender is the first fiction you ever wrote? Is art history a house you can live in? Who and what taught you to be a woman or other? If you were to die and come back as an artwork or an artistic genre, what would it be? What is your greatest extravagance? What is your greatest extravagance as a woman? What is your greatest extravagance as an artist? And are these different things? Can you remember the time before you became aware of gender? Do you think grammatical gender has influenced the language in which you understand yourself and your work? What does the following title conjure for you, the uterus of the young boy? Do you think lying is the language of misogyny? What is your greatest fear? And does this fear have to do with your gender? To live a feminist life is to be a feminist at work, Sarah Ahmed writes. So if art is one's work, how does one be a feminist as an artist? How does the practice of feminism inflect one's art practice, their writing practice, their curatorial practice, etc.? How would you like to work ideally? And when you're at work, do you consider yourself a woman at work or just a worker, just? What does the image of power look like to you? How did you first learn or not to use it? Do you find the language of feminism to be absurd or inspiring or a bit of both? Let's begin with this, since it's something that's all around us. How would you like to work, ideally? How do I like to work, ideally? It's a very complex question that probably I've been trying to answer by surrounding myself with women, funnily enough. And all the time, all my entire career, I heard that um, women and work with women would be mean to be surrounded by some sort of an envy, that everyone was kind of uh, looking for something that they could not realize that actually it would be difficult and it is much better actually to work for a man because then there is some sort of um, opposition that makes the tension and that may help you to, to actually progress in your job. And the only big, big problem I got in my life when, when I had a man as a boss mm -hmm. and that man was surrounded by other men telling that man that I would eventually uh, take his seat. 
And, um, and I never had any problem when I had a woman as a boss. When I, when I got my first job, uh, my first boss was a woman. And then the second job, my boss was a woman. And then my, my third boss was a man. My fourth boss was a woman. Every time that I work under the umbrella of a woman, everything went really well. So I learned that actually there is a gender question dealing with the question of, of work and how do you want to work ideally. And it, it has to do with first acknowledging the talent of those working with you and that in, in certain conditions it is difficult that men do acknowledge uh, intelligence by woman. And I experience it so many times. It may be a, a topic, and I hope it become more and more of a topic in the future. Mm -hmm. But um, but it has been a reality that I've been facing. It was very difficult that every time a woman claimed um, authority for like to be the author of a text or uh, something they did, they said, "Oh, but this is." would be a little bit dangerous if they start thinking that they are authors while they are just workers in an organization. You know, uh, the character, all the comments that they were implying, that is my experience. It always happened when I had a man taking care of the organization, normally with an economic CEO taking care of the boss, and the two men ruling. And this is kind of the development that we are kind of facing in the art world. I think more and more that's what we are seeing. We are seeing also women directors that they are kind of together with an economic director or economic directors that they work together with directors. So the idea of the director having an autonomy, it's kind of, it's lessening. Mm -hmm. and, and this also implies that all the power under the umbrella of power has less power. So all the power kind of is lessening, mm -hmm. and this affects dramatically um, gender. There's this idea that I think um, that we all have to fight against. It's, it's inside me, it's inside everybody I've ever worked with, that power more naturally associates itself with the men in the room than the women. And the women, I feel like often when you're in these kind of mixed situations, um, there's either, um, there's a kind of there's this trying to either claim it or understanding that it's not yours and this sort of resistance to it. And I think as power becomes less, it, and p power becomes less autonomous in these situations, it simply also means that it's not just that the men are going to have less power, proportionally the women are going to have less and less and less. Or as you pointed out in your um, essay, I think for the EFLUX journal, that as these, as these positions become also less powerful, then it's also seen as a place, ah, oh, well, these are places now where women can take a role. Absolutely. But also, I think that the, there has not been a proper assessment of um, how, for example, um, the imagination of power entangles itself with forms of organization. I mm -hmm. think we kind of think that power is who has it, mm -hmm. and then the organization form is kind of independent of that, right. but response to it is symmetrical. But it's not entirely true. I mm -hmm. think there is big questions like um, height, like uh, women are normally smaller, mm -hmm. uh, race, like mm -hmm. origin, accent. So many, many things. The tone that, of the voice, uh, the way one speaks in a meeting. That affects women in a much more radical way than, than they do affect the, the, the image of power into a man. Mm -hmm. And I think that women have not been reflecting enough upon these questions.
thinking, um, moving away from sort of issues of hierarchy or, and power, I think especially in the fields in which I work, which are um, like you, contemporary art and uh, exhibition making and pedagogy, but also literature, I'm always interested in being surrounded by women because selfishly, I think I'm much more interested in the art and writing that women do than men do. It's not, a, it's not this kind of naive idea of, a, of this kind of woman inspiration, but there is something in me that I am interested in the work that women do and the thinking that women do because it's almost always in some sense um, slightly a kind of form of resistance because in all these spaces that they are, you know, the work they have to do to get there kind of in, creates a kind of a regular working method of resistance in what they do, just for them to even find themselves in the place where they have a voice, basically. And this changes the work they do, and it changes the thinking they do. And this is the kind of thinking, I think, that is quite interesting to me. There is a way of engaging and a way of communicating that is kind of more pleasant. Still, it's going to change because yeah. uh, what we are expecting at the end, what we are saying is that uh, we would like the male also uh, to join this conversation, to be yeah. aware of the changes that need to be done, to be aware of the conditions that need to change, not only for us, but for them and for the togetherness of us and them and so on. But yeah. uh, the logistics of the working conditions are made for men. I think a woman have no say. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's surprising that there is no social conversation about what makes possible that actually the woman can work the way mm -hmm. they need to work. It's a minor question, but it's a major uh, logistical problem if there is uh, children involved, how to respond not only to the question of children, but to the question that many women are really not comfortable in the concentration times in offices. Why don't they adjust mm -hmm. uh, the possibilities? They like uh, flexibility and freedom much yeah. more because of um, historical questions of how you know, work has been presented to them and what they are expected. And they, they are expected really to be committed in ways which are secretarial. So yeah. the very moment and that they have, exactly, in order to find their own way of working, yeah. we need to do a lot of research. And I don't think that we have been doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that it's a question of just integrating women into work or mm -hmm. just making them part of the the ways that the logistics of offices and systems have been presented to them. Therefore, you need to research. I think not only women, I think all, all kinds, um, you know, the plurality of all genders and, and, and identities, but particularly because women and men have been sharing the roles in such a particular way historically. And, and, you know, even for gay communities, they would also need to have these choices. Mm -hmm. They need to, to decide if they will work as a woman or a man. Mm -hmm. I think there is very queer ways of working, mm -hmm. but there is very few queer ways yeah. of working. But I think women in most workplaces are already embodying those queer ways of working. Because to be a woman and to go into a workplace, which, as you said, is almost always set up for a sort of male, straight, heteronormative um, kind of conditioning to be a woman and to go into the space and to work and to kind of claim the power that you need so you can get your work done. There is like a queering involved in that. You're kind of, you're moving between between what you are and a kind of performance of what what these spaces are made for. And these spaces are not made for you. No, no. So you have to sort of transform. It's a performance every day. And maybe this is also why, actually, this idea of like of women 
working at home or women working in these kind of setups, which are slightly untraditional and unclassical, ha there's a bit of relief in them but because that performance can fall away somehow. But also reporting differently. I think even it's very interesting how, for example, in um, the curatorial language, we have been talking so much about formats. We uh, have been obsessed about, you know, from panel discussions to the exhibition formats to everything that has this kind of representativity and yet we have never discussed the very formats of work and the question of, for example, the meeting, how the work is um, distributed, uh, who is distributing it, who is accepting that distribution, how are you reporting, how are you connecting the reports. And this is kind of really, it's it has been without uh, a revolution. Nobody has actually done mm -hmm. anything to mm -hmm. those formats. They, they are very stable mm -hmm. and they imply what they used to imply. Mm -hmm. And it's even if you adopt that as a woman, you would just be replicating formats of That's distribution right. of labor that are not made for us. And it's actually not how many of us would see the way of advancing. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's absolutely really no, um, no language for it. Mm. Um, the left has kind of leave us with a language that is uh, very old, that does not accommodate to, to questions of gender and the uh, ideas of leadership and, yeah. and, and um, you know, responsibility that are super old fashioned and, yeah. and concentrate all the time into questions of personality and identity and right. the charm of, of those that can do it. I also think there's something that we've inherited too, which is that and and I, I see myself doing it that we kind of use this um, this reduced language where when we talk about women I think actually we also what we really mean is feminism because of course women are not uh, unitary across the no, board no, no. interested in You're these right. things I mean I saw this really hilarious and very dark tweet I think yesterday and basically uh, there was an article in some main American newspaper about how the top um, five sort of military and military arms companies are now have CEOs who are women. And so basically the military industrial complex run out of the United States and Western Europe at this point is being led by like five CEO women. And this, this woman, this journalist wrote, what wave of feminism is this? And it's a really good question because I think when we talk about women moving these things, just to be a woman does not mean you're a feminist. It doesn't mean you're interested in the kind of conversations we're talking about. But not only, and, and not, not replacing men in certain positions right. uh, made any change. Exactly. The things are much more complex than that. Yeah. But it is the positions themselves that we need to rethink. It's, it's the, the, the way of, of leading uh, certain things. But yeah, it, I think it's a very good question. Yeah. But, and also what is feminism in, in, you know, in everyday life? And um, how does it also is a complete metamorphic concept uh, mm -hmm. because everyone now is jumping into it but from a complete different points of view and I think it's absolutely legitimate but yet it, it, it needs a constant reactualization of some of the historical values together with the new questions mm -hmm. and also with the new feelings because it's not only about the questions yeah, but the experiences. Needs to be, it needs to be sort of metabolized into your body so that's part of 
It's part of your thinking. It's part of your interactions with others. It's part of your work life. It's part of your personal life. It's not like a subject in which to curate a survey exhibition about and then leave it and move on to the next trend. And I feel like in in the contemporary art world in which we work, this is very much often how feminism is treated. It's treated as a kind of exterior subject that one can kind of craft a show around. And I see this also with male colleagues who I've worked with. And then it's sort of left and you move on. But the daily practice of making that exhibition is not feminist in the extreme. It's still misogynistic. And yet the, what the body of work is, it's supposedly about feminism and its influence on aesthetic practice and 60s and 70s, first wave, second wave, third wave. And yet that's not what feminism is. It should be like a practice from the moment you wake up in the morning. It should be embedded in your dreams. It should be embedded in all sort of social interactions and relations. because the other day I was reflecting on the fact that when, that even, I think, that the art world has not even good at understanding its own structure. That, for example, museums and Kunsthalle come before, for example, art schools. Like, that there is a hierarchy. And mm -hmm. then I realized it, I never thought about it, but then I realized it when I moved to one. Then you realize that people thought that you are degrading yourself by working yeah. in art school. And it's so interesting. And then, on top of it, instead of asking about education, they keep asking me about teaching. Mm -hmm. So I remember that the tw like the 20th question, like, um, how do you like teaching? I said, do you mean, what do I think about education, art education? Because when men were directors of art schools, they were Ask about thinkers. education yeah, yeah, because course. they are the philosophers. They are the yeah. ones that actually the Black Mountain College people. <laughs> but yeah. when a woman is doing that, it means that the new intendancy is at work. And then it's about you becoming a teacher. That becoming eventually, a worker, not a thinker, a yeah, worker. You, and, and eventually, of course, you direct the whole the whole small thing, but uh, <laughs> it has no impact because and yeah. it's so particular and it's so deep in yeah. that you cannot see... They don't want, it's not only you cannot, of course you could see it. That's my frustration, I think. Um, I think one of the questions is, what's your biggest fear? My yeah. biggest fear is that surrounded by super interesting people, most of them women, that they, that they don't get acknowledgement. My yeah. biggest fear is that peers that you see, talented people that you see that they are contributing, that there is no memory for it, that there's absolutely amnesia of that work and that every reference goes somewhere else. And that is, yes, a, a very, there's a big fear. It's not making me resentful, but it is, it, it's having an impact mm. in the mood because mm. I see it every day. Of course. That there is conversations about people and, and lack of conversations about others. Yeah. And, um, and that there is no writing about it, that there is no media talking about it, and there is not enough and I think that's that's why I think it's not about only replacement, but it's a transformation of yeah. the way that we think, you know, about the whole uh, decolonizing, not only um, externally from, um, you know, the colonies in a in a classical way of seeing it, seeing Europe going reaching out and destroying, but also Europe destroying in. Yeah, so destroying the question itself. of a, of a 
of a colonized agenda colonization and 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 you see it in the way that certain things cannot be thought yeah. why don't you have an imagination for the importance and the relevance of women of your ideas i mean i think one of my biggest fears is that what you just described is that <clears throat> is that i have internalized that 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 i have internalized so much of um so much kind of very regular commonplace sexism within myself that there's always this feeling of inauthenticity when i move um when i'm embarking on a sort of project and i think it's very much that discrepancy between what you what you just described whereas if the man is the head of an art school he's a philosopher he's the thinker the woman is the head of an art school she's simply a teacher who has risen so it's this idea this discrepancy between the big ideas thinker and the labor the one who's in the classroom teaching the kids how to read how to write how to draw and i think in so many women and in most people who have any in any way been sort of marginalized <clears throat> this idea of yourself as a labor you understand how to work but you don't understand how to conceive yourself as the person who is thinking the large ideas and can take claim for them and take authorship for them but even if you do the reception and the power that we have in broadcasting it mm-hmm. is is almost nothing absolutely um i remember when i was younger that i was really dreaming with one day i would perhaps try to be the director of a big museum not very long ago somebody were talking about me and said like would you you know you would be the great director of x museum <laughs> and would you not like to do it and then i thought about it and said but when i reached that moment i would never be granted um the beneplacit how you say the the generosity of the media mm-hmm. that men enjoy and then it would be a nightmare so realizing that but the very moment that a woman would get into that position that even the media would not allow to go in of the course. way that you would acting as a man took me years to understand that if you do a minimum mistake it would be all over and that the gigantic mistakes of others get not even question mm-hmm. and this of course makes you think and that goes back to historical feminism that it's very difficult to have any impact but in really reduced circles Absolutely. and in very trust circles where you can be sure that those would acknowledge and it's it's a big problem yeah and i think part of that is that because people do not like what power and authority looks like on a woman it immediately becomes a personal thing a woman becomes complicated she becomes unfriendly she becomes i mean you see it in the discourse in media about politicians anytime there's a kind of woman politician no matter what she might be like actually when she's debating when she's speechifying in her personal life she's she becomes unfriendly she becomes irritating she becomes shrill there's all these words and basically what it is about is it about a woman sort of in power exercising a voice talking unapologetically about her ideas but there is and even... people are so they're so turned off by that it it's like and women are turned off by that it's not just men that are turned no, off of women not. are also propagating there's a kind of we've metabolized and internalized so much misogyny that that women are often the most sexist when they see other women in power but if they are turned on by it it's also bad and that's uh-huh. where the question of that's race for example goes on i yeah. think if you play the card of you realize that you act in a different manner because of culture because of of origin and so on and you play along the lines of your own 
values and, and culture values yeah. and you turn them on because it's their eyes are full of exotism mm-hmm. and they really mm-hmm. want that kind of new form of power that seems more joyful that actually contradicts their own perhaps anglo-saxon way of seeing things mm-hmm. or so on and so forth it's also bad mm-hmm. because the very moment that they feel that they are seduced by it they completely go into the castration and they make you feel like that they, yeah. they would actually make you notice that this is actually good for you but is and it's and it works and you convince me and it's true it's not a good thing because you are breaking rules that should not be breaking and mm. that's really interesting and I I you know and this is going to affect the whole construction of our societies because it's not only questions of 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 gender but we are going to be facing gender and race going together in a really and class and we don't have languages to address this incredible complication mm-hmm. and then you think oh but we advance we advance not a single inch in anything you can see uh, what's happening now in Spain because of box you know the ultra right mm-hmm. and everyone say no but Spain did not have ultra ultra right now they have 20 like 12 percent Um, in the South Parliament and uh, they are going to go into the national uh, elections and every other country in Europe is going exactly yeah. the same direction. I mean, it's so, interesting, actually, when you look at the United States, you look at Europe, you look at South America and this sort of geopolitical, very, very far right turn that's happening now. I don't think it's just this political pendulum where people talk about this movement between um, this movement, the swinging between right and left, right and left. The dominant what unites all of these super far-right governments and very corrupt governments, but beyond corruption and beyond a kind of right-wing uh, politics is two things. It's a, kind of, it's a kind of theology and a methodology of fierce misogyny. This is what unites all of these leaders and a kind of xenophobia. But also, so again, it's gender and race but and also geography. The, the rise of, of and respect, uh, partly, Um, to countries like you know China mm-hmm. and um, and other countries and even fundamentalism also wake in our part of the world the idea that actually some of the old values have value mm-hmm. and in some societies do work mm-hmm. so why should we change that way when very powerful economies actually um, do allow women to work and so on but they are not suffering under the same kind of complaint and you know a stupid revolt of uh, of the woman rights question because mm-hmm. they still perform a level of tra- traditional values that make them you know happy enough and and so on it's a mix of mm-hmm. all these kind of conditions new conditions that you know it could be ultra modern and conservative at the same time of things course. can be mixing ways that make you happy at least in the appearance but still uh, also make happy those male that still yeah. keep the power. But I think it's interesting to think about, and I think, you know, and because it's also not just sort of, it's not just this sort of right-wing turn that brings out that brings out a very calloused and a very vocal and a very explicit misogyny, but it's, it's like sort of all corridors of power. And so it makes me think that power in itself is a kind of misogynistic force, that it needs this kind of binary between male and female and between the power and the powerless. And this is what's quite interesting. I mean, it's coming out now, like in the United States, of course, which is one of my dominant references because I'm from, I'm from there, that 
um, some of the the democratic campaigns in the last election that you know ostensibly they were for feminism and they were for progressiveness and and social justice and so forth, but they there was like endemic sexism and sexual harassment within the campaigns themselves that was completely shut down and is now coming to light, and this of course I mean I remember when I was growing up and talking to my mom who sort of when she was young started out in the anti-Vietnam movement and so forth, and then sort of migrated to the feminist movement. And she talked about how that wave of feminism in the United States was basically completely full of women who had been working in the anti-Vietnam movement. Mm -hmm. And the sexism there was so overwhelming that it had radicalized all of them in terms of feminism and allowed this to happen. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that in so many of the positions in a smaller way, but just as sort of explicit that I've worked in in the art world and without, where ostensibly the, the sort of feminist conditions supposedly that you're working under are exactly the opposite. And what unites all of these things are that they're places of power. And as soon as you get more and more power, more and more power is necessary to act, sexism seems to be the sort of automatic response. It's the way that work is divided. It's the way that work is done. It's the way that people see, okay, this is how we're going to get all of this done in this time period. All of a sudden, it comes down to a kind of gendered labor force. And this is something that I think we have to, we have to like radically question. And, and as you said before, develop a language to actually talk about because it's always the most unspoken. I think we need to learn how to move, how to feel how to absorb certain experience, how to analyze them in a different way. So it's not only a question of absorbing knowledge, but really a question of reprogramming behavior. Otherwise, you cannot change the circumstances. So the circumstances are not only a given, but you can fabricate them. Mm -hmm. And actually, we need to fabricate different scenarios, tests, mm -hmm. um, so that we can train. And, and a training is needed. It's not that it's going to happen naturally because nothing yeah. happened naturally, but even the social needs a new training. I was the other day, it was so interesting. I never watch realities. I don't have a television, but then... <laughs> not even on your laptop? No. <laughs> But then I was reading the Spanish press, and I think all over Christmas there was no, you know, no big news. So they were reporting on uh, a woman from Peru mm -hmm. that win this kind of Big Brother program in Spain. And I was interested, you know, it's like it's probably the first foreigner woman from, from South America winning, and everyone was celebrating it. And I was like, okay, let me watch five minutes of this. And I thought it's so interesting that there is no single text talking about the fact that the development of uh, Big Brother is Dutch, mm -hmm. and that uh, and that Dutch, the Dutch is probably the biggest imperial and colonial power ever, and that they are really big experts in colonizing um, again and again, and how this is it. So I was like watching that, thinking, but all the portrait, the type, the way that they are looking for certain women uh, targeting them to go into the into the um, uh, program mm -hmm. was actually targeting questions of you know of a social colonization of gender those women were 
not workers, they are not workers, they are not um, hookers, they are not writers, they are not actresses, they are not PR, they are nothing. They are just that kind of strange, uh, desire, bold animal that um, would make everything possible to win that program as a powerful woman that is mm -hmm. completely powerless because it's made by uh, the media. And then they would completely go for those traits that um, that really hurt in the social, like, you know, uh, misogyny together with uh, xenophobia to the core. Mm -hmm. And then they would turn those into positive terms. So it's a woman from Peru. So the woman from Peru would be celebrated, but it actually means the Ebola. It's as if that kind of media sent that as a, you know, and, and it's, I don't know even how to explain it, but it's, I could only see it as a ship mm -hmm. uh, going somewhere in your mind and doing exactly what they used to do, going mm -hmm. to that territory mm -hmm. and taking every good value out mm -hmm. and leaving destruction behind. And I thought, wow, this is really so, interesting no that yeah. the, that's uh you know it's it's very touch in a way but it's so interesting actually just to think about because i do watch a bit of reality television and if you think about reality television <coughs> most reality television workers so let's call them reality television workers are women these yeah. programs are built around groups of women I and, and a kind that. of you know from the kardashian family which is almost all <coughs> women and the men are sort of ancillary and this kind of supporting cast to in the united states uh, the Real Housewives of Atlanta, the Real Housewives of Washington, D.C., the Real Housewives of Orange County, the Real Housewives of New York. These are groups of women, um, mostly wealthy women, um, who have either married into their or made their own money, but how they made their money is often not very much discussed. And these programs are completely built on matrilineal social relationships. And they embody sort of every stereotype. I mean, it's a kind of, I wonder if it's a kind of colonization, a kind of self-colonization, <clears throat> a kind of self-own. I mean, it's it's so strange. It's so strange that one of like the, the most visible kind of female workers at this point is the reality television female worker. This is what we see because it is work. It is a kind of no, no, it is a performance. That was what I was saying. I think they were they <laughs> kind of were embodying all the palette of possibilities. They could be, you know, working in prostitution, but they are not. Yeah. They are like they could be PRs, but they are not. They could be actors, but they are not. They could be cabaret, but they are not. They are nothing. They are just reality show workers, yeah. and they do it so well. Yeah. And they embody exactly that kind of nightmare. <laughs> of, of of the of the colonized world yes yeah, but yeah. also in a really perverse almost beautifully perfect uh, what the colonizer wants. I think if you read the reports of the kind of soldiers that they were sending to America, um, it's this kind of person. I think if you like how the Compañía de Indias mm -hmm. was recruiting mm -hmm. the type of people, how all the, you know, the crew of Hernán Cortés and all these people, the letters, the correspondence of the type of man that they were looking is this type of man. But now it's this type of woman. Yeah. So, and that's the ship. 
no? You have this mm -hmm. big brother is that kind of Carabela de Colón okay. that goes into this sort, sort of imaginary territory, which is social. So are you like making a call <laughs> to decolonize um, reality television? Yeah, it would be really <laughs> interesting. I was like... Decolonial practices making their way through sort of reality Not really. Media. I think I was totally fascinated by that there is like a parallelism into this kind of, this recruiting, this kind of the close vessel no, that is the ship or the studio, that kind of house, and the way that you destroy. Yeah. And you destroy because of you, you want to win. So it, it was exactly the same pattern. Yeah, yeah. Those people going into those ships to the unknown, they were going into the unknown with one single motivation, to win. Yeah. And the destruction of what they encounter was not even taken into account because it was not in the picture. And that in the broadcast system I think of course now the territory may not be um, a new country but yet it's the social again so it's all this uh, looking at it thinking that there is something there to be watched what what are we watching I yeah, think what absolutely. is this I mean I was thinking about this this week when I was in Zurich because there's this show of course at Quinstella Zurich with these large portraits of Kanye West yeah. and I was thinking about I think on the first day of the year like almost two weeks ago now um, all he was tweeting was about Trump, Trump all day, his support of Make America Great Again and his support of basically the most sort of racist, you know, misogynistic, uh, colonial, corrupt uh, regime in, in recent times. And But I was thinking about him sort of framed in these images. He's now been reduced to a kind of reality star. Now he's a kind of Kardashian, basically. And what that means for exactly these kind of, this kind of reality television family to be in such blatant support for this regime and to also be framed in a kind of Zurich art institution. And right across the hall from Kunsthalle Zurich, of course, was the Luma Foundation where Arthur Jaffa's film Love is the Answer, The Answer is Death was on. And what what is most remarkable about this film, of course, is this incredible track that Kanye West and Chance the Rapper did um, a live recording of this kind of gospel song on Saturday Night Live a few years ago. And that is what sort of pushes the entire video along with its representations of um, violence against African-American bodies and also African-American entertainers in the United States. And But I couldn't help but thinking about Kanye West as becoming a kind of reality television figure and what that means and his support for Trump. And within these kind of halls of Zurich, within this very Swiss space and within this very contemporary art space, and the, the layers of it were kind of mind-boggling as I was moving through it. So, Yeah, it's very weird also because it's, it's not trespassing here, no? It's like completely sealed. It, it, it's basically, it's like kind of, it parachutes in. And of course, Luma bought this work, this Arthur Jaffa work. So this work is now going, it's here. And um, and there's no, it's it's kind of, I don't know, may, maybe as manifested by the sort of the white walls of the space and the brewery, it's completely contextless. It's yet more reality of a television. It's more images. I'm not sure what work those works do here as you move through them. Um, I had just come from the day before I had been working with my class in Zurich. We had been reading this uh, poem, this very long poem by um, the African-American poet Robin Cost Lewis that came out a couple of years ago in this incredible book. The poem and the book are both called Voyage of the Sable Venus. 
and um, and basically the entire poem it's it's really amazing is constructed of titles and descriptions of artworks from the Greco-Roman period until now uh, that image and describe um, black female bodies, women and girls. And she created an entire poem to talk about the representation of the black female body throughout art history. And of course, Voyage of the Sable Venus, it's named after, um, I believe it's a kind of, it's an 18th century um, aquatint of a kind of Venus de Milo um, coming out of a shell, but it's a black woman. And so she's coming out of the shell and it's over the Atlantic Ocean. And this image was basically a kind of a, a kind of reasoning and apology for slavery, as if the reproduction of the black female body over the Middle Passage from Africa to the Americas and the West Indies was a kind of movement by choice. And all around her, all around this black female Venus de Milo are these white cherubs. <laughs> so she's actually giving birth to these like white bodies. I mean, it's this this image is so dark on so many levels. And this is the title of this incredible poem. And um, the poem starts with an epigraph by um, a younger poet, and I, I can just paraphrase it, but it says something like, never to forget beauty, however strange and difficult. And so she's talking about the sort of the beauty of these art objects and artifacts and seeing yourself represented. And yet at the same time, this representation is just laden with violence and caricature and projection. It's so little about wh who these people are that are pictured themselves, but about the people writing it and the people doing the sort of crafting. Anyway, it was, it was quite incredible to move through this poem with my students in Zurich and then somehow end up at the Lovenbrau and see um, these two depictions of Kanye West, both his like musical production and his image. And representations too of these of, of of these bodies by the kind of um, the dominant culture and this and and the heaviness of and the complication of of white supremacy and how how difficult it is to escape it and how it kind of closes your mouth that the, again we still still to this day do not have a language to really talk about the complexity of what we're seeing and what we're projecting and the violence it's doing to everybody Moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please go to our website www.institut-kunst.ch or request information or subscription to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Institutu Sush is part of a new museum initiative open to the public from January 2nd, 2019. More information can be found at www.museumsush.ch. Editing and sound design, Elena Cesar. Research assistant, Alice Wilke. Recordings, Konrad Siegel. Choir by Inka Teha and Emilia Alvarez. Produced by Institut Kunst Basel and Institut Susch, Art Stations Foundation Switzerland 2018.